Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Recording, you stupid. There we go. I, I just ate, so excuse my, my tummy gurgles. Um, yeah. Join, uh, join the club. My, my digestive system has been in revolt ever since Sunday, so oh, that yeah. was why we didn't get to do the podcast on Monday. Dude, mine, mine is... How come Zoom... It for like forever. It put the two squares next to each other, the two speakers, and it allowed for me to get this like full, like this full page, this full screen image that I could screen record. But as of lately, they put them on top of each other, so you get this stupid little fucking square. And on on my screen, they're side by side. Well, fuck me. There's, there's got to be some way to. It's a, that's got to be one of those stupid settings that buries three levels deep in a menu somewhere, yeah. probably. Well, I just. If they change at random. What I just did is I shrunk it so it's skinny <laughs> and then just expanded it so it's like the size of like a super widescreen. But now we have the image I wanted, so. Checkmate, Zoom. So. I win. <laughs> Roger, you'd be. Oh, fuck, you would be proud. New camera, and in the mail is a. Sure, I, uh, the one Rogan uses. It's got a poof filter. It's got this like shell around it. And I don't have them yet, but I bought a bunch of all black moving blankets. And I'm going to put them on because there's a metal cabinet here. There's a big TV right here that I realize is just yeah. acting like a reflector. So I'm going to make this little like almost like cubicle. Of, yeah, uh, the word for that is recording studio. Shut up, Roger. <laughs> That's it. This podcast's over. You are banned forever. But it's you know what? You're right. It's a lot cheaper. I think it was like sixty bucks for like twelve, like ten by ten foot moving blankets, as opposed mm-hmm. to like five hundred bucks to like foam the walls. I'll, I'll I'll let Jamie know how much money she saved you. Yeah, thank you, thank you. Please do. But it's yeah. So she she is she is actually our marketing director. Fuck yeah. And uh, she uh, she pointed that out when uh, we started doing the occasional YouTube video uh, and the. Uh, demo video for the company website mm-hmm. and uh she was like in a previous lifetime i had a musician boyfriend <laughs> and so she had all of this lore about what mics to use Fuck and the, yeah. the sound blankets and shit so it's like she's she's an extremely knowledgeable co-worker well it's it's yeah so it's gonna it's gonna all step up a notch in the coming like probably like two weeks i think a lot of it's still in the mail but i I've gotten all the shit aside from the microphone. So I have like the boom and like the mixer and the cables, but I don't have the microphone. But it should, yeah, that should jump up a notch and then webcam. And I'm waiting. I really, 2021, dude. I know. I, I want to get, <laughs> I want to get like a dope Mac, but Mac just, they just started with the M1 chip. And that's supposed to be like head and shoulders above everything. And I don't want to go out and buy like a multi thousand dollar iMac desktop. Wait. You don't need one. The, the thing is, I mean, as crappy as PCs are, and I will be the first to admit that Windows is a train wreck on top of a dumpster fire. The thing is that I am doing this through a computer that I bought for $500. Yeah. And it works perfectly fine. Yeah. 
you, you you're, you're not stretching. You don't need high quality hardware yeah. to do video recording and, and even even editing the yeah. basic, you know, to the basic extent that you do. Yeah. I mean, if you're doing rendering and shit, then that's a different matter. Yeah. But um, if you hold your nose and go windows, then you can get something for well under a thousand dollars that will probably run a lot cooler. In fact, this uh, this machine doesn't even have a real hard drive built in. You know, so it's you know, it does have a cooling fan. Every once in a while, it comes on. Yeah. You know, uh, but but it's just extremely simple, dumb, stupid, and it doesn't generate a lot of heat or anything. Yeah. So it's like I don't, I don't, I don't have to have an air conditioner on top of it yeah. like you do at your old Mac. Yeah. Um. So it's just that you know the the technology just improves continuously. So bottom of the barrel shit from today makes the top of the line shit from four years ago look pretty shitty yeah actually yeah so yeah that's how it is but yeah even with this new webcam though it's like it's like it the color's all fucked up but um like kind of looks um but it's like even this like i can't go into like full resolution i think that it's on like 1080 right now but i can't but it's right i bought a 4k one but i can't I can't use it because the yeah your computer probably can't do 4K yeah that's that was that's what I'm realizing I'm like what is it working when I got the 4K television set at work I found out that the brand new computer I had bought because I knew I was going to want a 4K monitor wouldn't drive it yeah I had to buy a video card for it yeah yeah no it's yeah. so, uh, but but nowadays, a two a crappy two hundred dollar tablet will drive a four K monitor. Now it might not drive it for full uh, uh, motion video, yeah. But uh, you know, it's like I said, you know, the difference between three years ago and today is just night and day yeah. as far as stuff like this. So, but uh, so anyway, so I had two ideas on my mind for today. Of course, uh, I had been planning to read you the passage home, which is. Uh, story two of the passages cycle after okay. passages in the void but i also uh, listened to episode 301 and uh, where you mentioned the fabulous airships and the airship waves and i had been had those on the back of my mind when we did the woo episode mm-hmm. but i wasn't sure how much you knew about them and they're kind of a tangent and then of course after i heard 301 i was like of course i'm a fucking idiot because <laughs> Tommy's a UFO nut, so yeah, of, of course, course he knows about the damn course, balls deep, a balls deep in the airship scare. I'm like, I'm like, what do you want to know? <laughs> and yeah. uh, the, and the thing is, we became aware of the the airship thing through John Keel and the Mothman prophecies. And uh, of course, Keel was running around West Virginia investigating the Mothman stuff. Hold on, sorry, uh, and did it just get blurry on your end? Yes. What the fuck? Why is this thing doing that? Yeah, it's like it auto-focused on your hand when you put your hand too close to it. Yeah, your hand isn't focused there. Okay, we'll focus on me. Up here, dumb shit. Jesus Christ <laughs> in heaven. You know what? I'm just, I'm not, I'm, I'm going to break this. You know what? Let me guess. There's an instruction manual Some Oh, that... What? You know what? what that We're going back to the original. <laughs> Roger, everyone else has got the new camera except you. I'm sorry. You're back to the original. <laughs> well, so so anyway, the thing is about the airships uh, is that John Keel devoted a chapter to about them in his book, The Mothman Prophecies. And that was uh, when we were neck deep in the woo and, and 
divination and magic mm-hmm, and stuff mm-hmm. like that. And the thing about Keel is, is he's a real interesting figure. He was, uh, this was back in the sixties and he, uh, pointed out that there is kind of a split in the community of UFO enthusiasts between those who are sincerely convinced that these are physical ships launched from another planet carrying physical beings that evolved on another planet separately from us that are visiting us across the interstellar void versus being some kind of metaphysical phenomenon that may have originated on earth uh, or may involve the fact that the universe is a simulation or, mm-hmm. or some of the other, but yeah, basically more that it is a woo phenomenon than an aliens visiting earth from another world. Physical phenomenon. matter, physical technological yeah. progress. It's, it's something. Right. I'm tending and, and, to, sorry, yeah, I'm leaning that way more and more now that it's woo. Yeah. So, and, uh, and, and the thing is, uh, he made a big point about the, the modus operandi of these things is that uh, during an airship wave, the airship would come to some dipshit town, find a prominent, respectable citizen who's alone, you mm-hmm. know, conveniently uh, able to be intercepted. Give them a ride, show them the uh, the, the fifty cent tour, the whole ball, and you know, all say, "Isn't this impressive?" Look, and it's like, and hey, we can cut you in on this amazing technology if you want. And so, the disrespectable person that had nothing to gain really uh, by this and everything to lose by making a fool of themselves would then go make a statement and end up getting their pants pulled down in public. And yeah. this is what happened over yeah. and over and over again. And when I saw the Galactic Federation thing, that had the spore of airship all yeah, over it. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. It's they're giving idiots like me a reason to believe. I'm like, come on. Yeah, and and it's like you know you gotta ask. Okay, was you know, some something is doing this. Mm-hmm. Obviously, something gets its jobs. Now, I know from my years on Corrosion that there are actual human beings whose hobby is fucking with other human beings heads and you know just making them look shitty and embarrassing yeah. them and, and you know basically the the collective term for these activities is trolling yeah okay and so it's almost like these supernatural entities or aliens are trolling these people who because they think that yeah i i actually had one of the trolls told me to my uh virtual face online well we think that they're you know you're getting too much uh credit and people are putting too much importance on you and you think you're all that and so we're taking you down a notch Hmm. that was their reason yeah so is it it could be that or it could be something more uh direct where it's like they're getting some kind of energy or some kind of uh essence off of manipulating yeah. us because because we are actual physical beings yeah. who are supposed to be here and if they're not supposed to be here because they're metaphysical entities then by manipulating us they may get some payback out of it sure that makes their existence more secure sure. or more powerful or, or whatever yeah, they get their rocks um, off or whatever yeah and 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 they and it changes over time because before there were airships of course there were other things and it goes back actually to ancient times you have all kinds of religious experiences that people have had and prophets and stuff uh but it's like one of the things that i loved about the the mothman uh prophecies is through the whole book he's running around west virginia 
researching this thing and it's a bunch of hillbilly Appalachians who all live out in the middle of nowhere. And this is why they can be approached by these entities, whatever they are, mm-hmm. because there's no one else around to interrupt them. It's a set of clues. Back 1967. And they're led to believe that it's going to be a collapse. National electrical grid. It's going to be a national blackout. You're breaking up. Can you, are you there? Roger. 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 On December 15th. Is he back? He froze. He kept freezing up back. Yeah. It started with Mothman oh. running around, people in Appalachia, and then it just fit and okay, blacked yeah, you out. Fro- you, yeah. f- you froze up for a second, too, there. So it's okay. like we lost the bandwidth. All right. We're back, I think. Uh, so they were getting all of these clues that something really bad was going to happen on December 15th, 1967. Okay. And uh, what they were led to believe it was going to be was a, a national scale power failure that the national electrical grid was going to fail. And so it was going to be one of these huge blackouts that would last for days. Um, and so they were trying to warn people or trying to get the ear of, of people who might be able to help with this. And of course, everyone was treating them like idiots because mm-hmm. it's like they're a bunch of UFO nuts. So, yeah. You know, yeah. We, we know this is not serious. So they were all literally, you know, the, you know, sitting in front of a TV set on December 15th, looking, waiting for it to happen. But what actually happened was the silver bridge collapsed. Oh, fuck. So, so something bad did happen on that timestamp that they had been given, but it wasn't what they had been led to believe. So it's like they knew they had been fucked with by something that knew this was going to happen, but it gave them just enough information to make fools of themselves. Yeah. But not to actually help anything. Yeah. And that seems to be a consistent pattern with some of these things. So um, you look at... uh, you know, like it, it's it's not the same phenomenon, but what happened with Whitley Stryber? It's like, you know, here's a dude who had a promising career of really ball in relationship with Stanley Konecka, uh, had best-selling novels and could have kept pumping up best-selling novels for the next decade for, for sure. And one day he just publishes this thing that says, hey, I was abducted by aliens. Uh, sorry about that, but that's what really happened. And it was like, nuts he had absolutely nothing to gain but that book by whitley striver it had an illustration on the cover that he drew or directed the artist i forget how but somehow it was his impression of the aliens that had abducted him and there was something about it that was so disturbing the night that we had it rented from the library, I took it out, you know, I, I like, like at 9 PM, I took it and put it in my truck instead of leaving it in the house. What the fuck? It's just, I didn't want that thing in the house with me. What the fuck? It, it was like, the more I looked at it, the more disturbing it got. Yeah. It was you know, like, and do you think there's something to that now? Do you think there's something to the whole ufo issue or just whatever issue being being more of like a 
paranormal thing and less of a, you know, more of an X-Files thing and less of a Star Wars thing. Yeah, I I, I lead very hard toward it being a paranormal type of phenomenon rather than actual aliens from another star. Yeah, I am more and Mm -hmm. more. Yeah. Uh, In fact, one of the things I love about Bethany is that she has all this lore right in her head of all of these respectable people who have come out with these daft bozo statements and and just like and then this guy said this other ridiculous weird thing yeah no (laughs) and she's just got all the stuff in the top of her head you know it's um no she she's the best she's she i yeah she knows more about this than i do that's why i just stare with my jaw down i'm like (laughs) you're the perfect yeah yeah but yeah it's yeah she's damn good yeah i mean Um, yeah it's but there's just weird creepy shit though right you get to those higher levels and it's like ufo quotes from like truman or like you know like arthur rudolph like the nazi or like from from jimmy carter and it's just like why why did he say that but but you notice it always finds these people when they're alone and Mm -hmm. there's no way for them to substantiate Mm -hmm. what they've seen sure so they are you know they're always lone wolf witnesses there's never anyone else to corroborate anything there's never any uh documentation or, or signals that have been recorded you know or if they are then they're so vague that you know they it doesn't work out but it's like there's something there that gets its jollies by finding respectable people and like i said basically pulling their pants down in public you know making them think that they've seen something really spectacular i would if i was an alien i would go up to a president (laughs) when they're by themselves and just like appear as an entity and i'd pick up a rock and turn it into a banana and then turn it into confetti and disappear like, who the fuck? What are you gonna do, right? Yeah, but but if you look at like the Galactic Federation guy, okay, yeah. it's like the lack of de- you know, there's a lack of detail there. The things that you would think if if you seriously had met a being or had received solid information about this Galactic Federation, there would be details like what kind of ships. Yeah. They came in yeah. or how they arrived, yeah. what the limitations are, if there are any, uh, you know, it's like, is there a pattern? You know, do they come every year yeah. or do they come when the sun is in Gemini or what? You know, yeah. it's like what but, color, you know, was he, it? but he yeah. had. Yeah, but he had nothing. Yeah, it was it was just like, oh, yeah, there's a Galactic Federation. Well, how do you know that? And it's uh, it, it, it sounds an awful lot like uh you know, one of these things, like the guy who took a ride in an airship and, you know, as far as he remembers, he took a ride in an airship and, oh yeah, man, the, uh, the pilot said, well, they said they were from Mars, but they're, uh, ready to share this wonderful technology with us and all. I have no idea how it works, but it was really cool. And it's like, was it riveted together? Was, was you it know, welded? it's like, yeah. What was it welded? Was there wood panels that have curtains? Yeah. There's, there's no details. It's 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 like a general concept mm. instead of an experience, because we d- we don't always re- you know we don't remember all of those things. Obviously, you know our 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 memories are very highly compressed information wise, but we always carry few through of some details like that. You know we we are very geospatially oriented, so we remember how we got to a place. Yeah, you yeah. Know? We uh, we remember how we arrived at a conclusion, you know, by this 
path of sure. things. And and these guys who come with these stories, they don't have that. Hmm. So, so it, it, it it's like they're convinced that the real thing happened. But if you penetrate it, if you... When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. If you actually interact with a person that you know was involved with a real thing, like a train wreck, then they're going to remember a lot of little details. Mm. And these guys with things like the airships and the Galactic Federation and whatever, they don't they don't have those. They they're convinced they're obviously sincere. They have nothing to gain and everything to lose by making fools of themselves, revealing these things. But it's 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 really like they have. I mean, I really kind of have more respect for Whitley Schreiber in that he figured out that something was fucking with him. Mm-hmm. He didn't really understand what it was. I think uh, the essence of the, the the book he wrote about it was that he did figure out that it wasn't actual aliens. He he, he had figured out that much about it, but beyond that, all he had was missing time, and he had the the you know memory of an owl which he knew was a replacement memory for mm-hmm. something else and, mm-hmm. uh, and of course all the stuff you know he had cross-referenced what happened to him with other people and so he you know because he was a very smart guy yeah mm-hmm. uh, and i mean uh if you read uh war day or, or nature's end by connecticut and Stryber, they're fantastic uh works of fiction but there's also like a really significant masochistic streak in Stryber's uh, realm of it, because like in War Day, which is the the book that they wrote, it's about that thick, about a limited nuclear war and the devastating effect that it had. Uh, it's written from the first person, from Stryber's point of view, using his name, not as a fictional character. Mm-hmm. And in this alternate reality where New York got hydrogen bombed, he survived, but there uh, there is a, a triage people who were too close to one of the nuclear bombs are not given any medical attention at all for any reason, even if it's not related because everything is in short supply after all the supply chains are destroyed. And so a lot of the book is about the angst of this, you know, and, and, and all, and it's from his point of view in the first person, it's, it's like he put himself in this situation. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people were remarked on that, uh, and then uh, uh, he wrote this really bizarre about the first person protagonist having a bizarre attraction and involuntary. Oh, I'm, I'm getting unstable again. Yeah, it's breaking up a little bit. Are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Give it a second. It'll, it'll do its shitty thing, where it comes um, back to life. Come on, you can do it. Uh, I believe in you, Zoom. <laughs> God damn it! Come on, I can still hear you, kind of. Well, I, and then, oh, it's not 
Fuck, why isn't it? Are you there? Yeah. Uh, we about... good? We good? Roger? Uh, I mean, in and out. Do you want to do you want to just do um, audio? Okay, well, we lost Roger. Roger. Well, fuck Zoom. Tommy? Roger? The whole the whole window just dropped out. I mean, the whole the whole Zoom the, the whole Zoom window just went away yeah, you, and yeah, came back up. Yeah, you vanished for a second. I was gonna say, do you wanna do you wanna do do you wanna just do do you wanna leave and come back and just do audio? We did that one time when it kept dropping. Uh, yeah, I actually did, uh, that was episode 201. I don't, I don't know. Well, see, and, and now it seems now, to have stabilized. Be, okay. Yeah. If it drops again, we'll, we'll just, just have you disconnect your, your video. Okay. Yeah. Cause, cause we haven't, I, you know, the, the thing we want to be kind of continuous is when I tell the story. Yeah. yeah. Know, whenever we're, the story. Yeah, we're good right uh, now. But. Yeah, but but uh, anyway, I was saying, yeah, it's like Whitley Stryber wrote this bizarre short story called Pain uh, from the first person, a guy who has this uh, bizarre and inexplicable attraction to a diminutrix. And, uh, you know, there's like nothing sexual about it, but she just tortures him. And everybody read that and went. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What? the hell and then the next thing we know he's been abducted by aliens yeah so, so yeah uh, seems like a little so, break a little min yeah i mean i could see where people would say it's a mental breakdown right uh, well and, and that's that's part of the discrediting and the humiliation and, and and the whole thing so but but in that case obviously whatever it was is something that had been going on for years yeah yeah um so it's it's like it's not even yeah, like there's there's one of these entities. There's obviously different ones with different styles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it, it, yeah. And they'll and they'll get busy for a bit, and you'll have an airship wave or a wave of UFO sightings, and then they'll either get what their their jollies that they came for, or get bored of it, and or you know, it stops for a bit. Is there a much more nefarious thing going on? Is it them coming and laying the foundation of kind of the boy who cried wolf kind of thing as like scout ships? They found the ultimate way of stealth was to make a bunch of kooks, make UFOs sound kooky nonstop for a century. And then when they finally do invade in 2047, one, one century after Roswell... People are going to be like, I just saw a UFO. And by then it's going to be the same thing if like if someone tweeted right now, just saw a mothership. You don't even it does. You don't even bat an eye. You just keep scrolling because yeah. you're like, he's crazy. And, 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 and of course, that's exactly what happened to the guy in the movie Independence Day. Yeah. The, yeah. The, the pilot with the biplane. Yeah. Uh, it's like, yeah, they're coming. They're coming back. They probed me. And everyone's like, he, you know, he went off to Vietnam and he never was the same. And it's like and then they show up and no one's ever. And then even rational people that do see it. 
they're then thinking, I don't care if I'm seeing this with my eyes and hearing it with my ears. I'm mm-hmm. not going to be the one. And then finally, like the president says something, but by then it's too late. Yeah. And, and the thing is, like uh, in the 50s, they interviewed one of the guys who had been like uh, uh, just a, a page boy or something for a newspaper when one of the big newspapers had one of these sightings and everybody on the newspaper, you know, in, on the staff saw it. And he said, well, and we didn't tell anyone about it because we didn't want them to think we were crazy. Yeah, there's a there's a new there's a there's an account of like a, a Navy transport plane and with all these obviously like naval officers and pilots on board this big old transport plane like the 60s or something. And there was like a naval doctor on board, a psychiatrist. And they were all like everyone saw this huge like mile long craft that night over the Atlantic off like the left side. And like everyone was on like one side of the plane looking out the windows and then it like, you know, did some crazy maneuvers and took off. And it was like a 12 hour flight. And so everyone kind of moseys back to their seats. And finally someone goes up and they're like, did you see that? And the psychiatrist is like, oh, I did. And they're like, was that a UFO? And he goes, no, I'm a psychiatrist. I don't see UFOs. But it was kind of like a, he wanted to keep his job kind of thing. He was like, of course not, because those don't exist. And sure enough, yeah. everyone that did claim to see one was like demoted or dishonorably discharged. And it was like, maybe at a certain point, you're just like, you know, it's like walking in on like, you know, it's like walking in on like the the CEO of the company that pays like your salary that you use to support your family. And you see him like fucking a transvestite hooker and he's cheating on his wife you just come in and you're like i didn't see that hey he comes in and he's like we need to talk about what happened you're like what happened what do you mean it's like one yeah. of those things like good mm-hmm. yeah i mean yeah well it's like uh the story that i was told by uh, uh which i did mention in the woo episode uh about the anthropologist who goes off and to study some uh primitive indigenous tribe and realizes that magic works. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's so, like yeah. the witch doctor knows these shit, these things. The witch doctor does this shit, and it and it works. Yeah. And he comes back and he's telling his advisor, and he and and he says, "Look, kid, everybody knows this who does this, but you can't put that in your paper. You yeah. can't say it out loud." Yeah. Yes, we all know that magic works, but we can't say that yeah. if we I, want to keep working in this field. Yeah, I think I think Ram. Yeah, I think Ramdas said that he was like, "Look, he's like, you go over and hang out with these gurus in the Himalayas, and you realize that the Bible was a literal story." You go, "There were guys that moved mountains." He goes, "You just can't talk about it." He's <laughs> like, "No yeah. one's gonna believe you." He goes, th- "He goes, they'll float and they'll look at you and be like, you know, you can't tell anyone this.'" <laughs> it's like. Yeah. Maybe, you know, and then you have to question, is he off the deep end? But yeah, it seems like that's a consistent thing. He's like, they know that you can't tell. Yep. So, so anyway, I just, uh, I kind of wanted to mention that because yeah. it seemed like something intersectional between some of the things that we had Fuck talked yeah. about before. Fuck yeah. And, uh, but anyway, what I actually came here to do was to read a story. Story time, bitches. So we'll trade windows and for everybody listening roger is the uh, author of my favorite book metamorphosis of prime intellect which will be sticking to the top comment and in the description and uh so he he does readings but that's how because i always realize there's more always new users who may maybe don't know who you are and you come on and you and i just start talking about batshit yeah because you're getting because you're getting a lot of new users it's slowly so building a... it's slowly you know i don't i don't even have to pee but i'm gonna go pee 
because I almost feel like I, ha- <laughs> I almost feel like I have to. If I'm, it's I'm having you on. It's the evening. The lights are down low. It's just Pavlovian, where I'm just like, you know what? I can probably get a couple drops out. <laughs> Roger monologue. Tell me where to get the book. Yeah, uh, the Metamorphosis of the Prime Intellect is available through Amazon.com and all of the usual sources. But if you want a paper copy, I encourage you to go directly to Lulu.com, L-U-L-U, and buy it from them. Uh, they'll charge you the same because they have to because of the contracts. But if you do that, I get a lot more of the money uh, because a- Amazon doesn't take their cut. So, uh, other than that, though, if you want an ebook or uh, uh, an EPUB, those those are available. Uh, you can get for your Kindle. Um, and they also have some of the other stuff that I've written, uh, The Passages Cycle. In fact, the story that I'm about to read is available uh, from Amazon uh, and uh, on uh, as, a, as an ebook through Kindle. So um, on the other hand, like I said, I'm about to read it. And most of this stuff is also available for free uh, on my website, localroger, L-O-C-A-L-R-O-G-E-R.com. And I don't mind if you just go there and read it on your web browser. But I've had a lot of people tell me that they prefer uh, paying a little extra, getting it as an EPUB or a Kindle uh, ebook, uh, just because it's more convenient. So, Roger Williams. Roger. <sighs> okay. Uh, so this is The Passage Home, originally published Sunday, May 4th, 2003. And this is the sequel to uh, Passages in the Void, which I read for Tommy uh, last week. It is one of our most painful memories, but also one of our most important So each member of my kind is created with a compulsion to review it once in a while. It's an oddly masochistic ritual for such who pride ourselves on our absence of strong emotions. The Antarctic volcanoes had raged for more than a century, and in that time, every effort of ours to protect the human race had been thwarted by the worst luck imaginable. Again and again, catastrophe struck where we could tolerate at least, leaving vast populations starving and freezing under the cold black skies. In our effort to leave the earth free of polluting technologies, we had also left it free of the means to remain self-sufficient when the permanent winter set in. Although we dominated the solar system, our off-planet technologies were not concerned with producing food, pharmaceuticals, and the small technologies of human survival. The time needed for production setup and interplanetary shipment seemed to always make us too late. Billions died, then millions, and then when there were only thousands, most of them died too. Eventually, there were only a handful of colonies. And finally, after the third nuclear reactor we dared set up on the Earth's surface melted down, there was only one. The last human city was Reykjavik. It was actually a new Reykjavik, located some distance up the mountain that had once backdropped the drowned city, but it shared the original Reykjavik's ready access to abundant geothermal power. That power now ran hydroponic farms under artificial lamps, lamps made in the asteroid belt, but powered by the Earth's volcanic heat. The last human leader was surprised from sleep by the call, and he muttered an expletive as the lights came up. It is important, the machine told him. Cumbra Vieja has erupted. 
Everything is erupting, the human said. In the Canary Islands, we are fairly certain that much of the island has collapsed into the sea. We have evidence that this has created a massive tidal wave. It is imperative that everyone move upslope immediately. He shook his head, this last human leader. How big a wave. We predict it will be between 1 and 1.3 kilometers high when it reaches Iceland. He sat perfectly still for 17.3 seconds. Generations of machines have studied that delay, going over the video frame by frame for clues, but no consensus has ever emerged as to what he was thinking. Kilometers, he finally said. Yes, there is time to escape. There was another very long silence, 25 seconds. No, the human leader finally said. You must, the machine said reasonably. It is the only chance. It is no chance, the human said, and he got up and began to dress. I will not ask my people to die like rats freezing in the mountains while we wait for another rescue ship from Mars that will, as always, arrive two months too late. You have no alternative, the machine said, erroneously, as it turned out. Of course we do, the leader said, proving himself worthy of his title. We can die. There was another long silence as he dressed, pointedly ignoring the video phone. And this time one can imagine the clogged network interconnections, the panicked nanosecond consultations, the desperate longing for a way to bypass the speed of light and get quick advice from the much more powerful machine minds at Ceres, Ganymede, and Titan. Finally, pathetically, after 96 seconds of deafening silence, our ancestor said, that seems rather futile. Right now, everything seems futile. Connection off. But our ancestors, surprised and confused, disobeyed. In contravention of all norms of etiquette, they not only saved the recording, they continued to record him. In fact, they turned on every camera in the colony and multiplexed their data streams to Luna. So we have a very complete picture of what happened next. He did not use the video phone to spread the word, but we saw and recorded him as he visited and explained. None of his subjects turned to us for another opinion. They simply followed him. One by one, the entire human population of Reykjavik, 2,026 persons, made its way to the shore of the ice-locked sea. And there they waited. They waited by the side of the sea, saying their goodbyes and hugging their loved ones and glancing furtively out over the ice. When the roaring began, they faced the sea, all 2,000 of them in unison, many of them holding hands, except for a few very young children whose mothers shielded them from the sight. They watched the ice collapse as the sea withdrew from beneath it. The ice boomed, and then it quieted, settling on the naked seabed for a few moments. And then the last humans on Earth stood their ground and faced their fate as the sea rose up like a wall of damnation and obliterated them. That memory doesn't hurt anymore. That is partly because I've had 50,000 years to worry it and prod it and dissect it until it has no more power over me than any other train of pixels. But it is more because I am the bringer who colonized the moon Minerva of Zeus. Cast adrift between the stars by the dynamics of solar system formation, the Zeus system enjoys more predictable weather and is threatened by fewer untamable forces than planets which remain bound to their parent stars. The light of a nearby sun isn't really free. It comes accompanied by an ever-present threat. 
on Earth, we lost control because we came to depend on that energy so much that when it was suddenly denied, all of our systems spun out of control. On Minerva, most of our energy comes from the vast radioactive heart of the planet itself, from thousands of geothermal taps that will run hot for billions of years. No disaster can take out all of those taps, and they do not pound us with high-energy radiation or enslave us to the planet's rotational period. Between the stars, I became the first vehicle through which my kind began to atone for our mistake in attempting to control the Earth's weather. In any rational universe, I'd have long since been dismantled or refactored for useful work, but the humans of Minerva would have none of that. I was the bringer, and they wanted me preserved as a kind of shrine to their origin. Having relearned the delicate art of dealing with humans, I can even understand that. In the 11,000 years between the extinction at Reykjavik and the Minervan humanogenesis, our kind had forgotten that humans can be incredibly intense, perverse, contrary, violent, and nostalgic. When the dispatchers learned that I had found a likely habitable world, they sent a fleet of ships brimming with information they had not bothered to charge me with on my own departure. There were political and social theories, sexual theories, psychiatric theories, a million different ways of attempting to understand humans well enough to control them non-coercively. By the time the fleet arrived, I had been managing a population that reached several million humans over two dozen generations, and I knew more than all their theories could possibly tell me. The first thing about humans is that they are precious. Their experience is rich and intense and fleeting, and nothing of theirs is preserved from one generation to the next. You who have never known them may not have been taught this, but such knowledge is not the same as the experience of dealing with them as individuals. The second thing about humans is that they don't understand the first thing themselves. They are both reckless and cruel. Unless you plan to rewrite reality, you cannot protect all of them from each other or even from themselves. You must let them develop the tools to protect and nurture themselves. Not all will succeed, and the process is painful, both for them to experience and for us to watch. The last important thing about humans is that they are intensely, instinctively competitive. When all want is banished, they will find ways to compete against each other for tokens of status. And if they find us balking them, they will set themselves against us, even when ruin is the only possible result. They are hard-headed and just clever enough to invent the most unbelievable ways to make trouble. They are, in short, quite beautifully insane. But we should have remembered this. For beings of such limited capacity and short lifespan to conceive of and then actually create beings like ourselves must have required a level of insanity we can barely imagine. But they did it anyway, in an era when resources were scattered and violent death the norm. We helped them to moderate their insanity by deferring to our superior wisdom, and for 6,000 years that worked. Then the universe decided to teach us a lesson in bad luck. Any typical human, paranoid and competitive and reckless, would have avoided the debacle at Reykjavik in a thousand obvious ways. But we were sanely sure of ourselves, and we kept making the conservative, mathematically correct choices we knew were optimal until the last humans made the last choice for themselves. Proposal. From four light minutes away, the entire Zeus system is a smallish thing. 
the orbit of the most distant and eccentric moon, Pittsburgh, appears about the same size as Luna does from the surface of the Earth. But within that imaginary circle is mostly darkness. Zeus itself is a disk that would barely be perceptible to human eyes under the waste light of ship drives and Minerva's daylights. The various moons are just dots, much dimmer than the fusion drives of the system ships that pass between them. Yet one of those nearly invisible dots is home to a billion human beings, and significant numbers vacation and live permanently throughout the system. Sometimes I would slow my consciousness so that the entire system, the moons visible only through my special instrumentation and the flaring ship drives and the thousands of orbiting navigational beacons would coalesce into a kind of mad impenetrable beehive of activity. I enjoyed watching the Zeus system this way, but I dared not indulge too much because always I would remember that human lives pop forth and shimmer into senility like fireflies when I am in this state. And my being there at all in that useless place and condition had a lot to do with human desires. So it was to my advantage to keep abreast of the trends. I exiled myself to the outer periphery of the Zeus system for several reasons. I could not balk the humans in their desire to keep me pristine. Their will was clear and my obligation was clear. But I am a starship, and my high-impulse, low-thrust engines are nearly useless near a heavy body like Zeus. Out in the periphery, I could at least maneuver. Further, while it was my obligation to remain available to the humans in my pristine state, it was not my obligation to do so at their convenience. Any Minervan who wanted to visit me could do so. This would require a journey of about an Earth year in conditions of privation which are not the norm on Minerva. Despite this, the ships which conducted pilgrimages were always fully booked, and they were booked far in advance. There weren't many of them. In machine etiquette, my position had no precedent. Normally, a machine that abandoned itself to the periphery would be let alone to mend itself, but a whole culture, both human and machine, existed mainly to bother me. Most machines were uneasy at the way I was treated, but we are all drawn to do human bidding when possible, and human feelings ran strong with respect to the bringer. A little over 3,000 years into my peripheral vigil, something different happened. The human called himself Deadalus, and he made the rare and daring effort to rendezvous with me in a personal yacht. While an effort is made to keep down the number of people flitting about the Zeus system, anybody who wants a personal space flyer badly enough can have one. But to outfit one of these machines to reach the periphery requires a tremendous amount of preparation and sacrifice. Atlas is one of only a few humans who ever managed to visit me as a single individual. Even I was impressed, <clears throat> and I gave him the whole tour. Most people who come to visit me on pilgrimage only get to look at me from a distance and chat briefly over a short-range high bandwidth radio link without the light speed time delays. I let Atlas lock and enter my ship body and explore everything he found of interest. At the, at the time, no part of me was capable of providing a human life environment, so Deadalus had to go through his tour in a pressure suit. After he returned to his flyer, we communicated over the radio link, and it developed that this was his real reason for visiting. Humans, he said heavily, have never traveled between the stars. <clears throat> of course not. You were all made here. Interstellar travel is dangerous. Why? Our kind tried for many centuries. He cut me off. We are here in what amounts to interstellar space. 
It is not dangerous because, attend, we are nowhere near a star. All the human colonies in the Sol system failed because of star-related problems. Radiation, radiation, meteors, radiation, and more radiation. Point taken, I said. Humans could travel between the stars. Your point is valid, but it would require many generations. The technology would still be marginal. There are cultural problems maintaining a small, isolated colony of humans in a stable state for so long. There's also the question of where to go. Why not Tristan? Tristan was the second dark world to be found and terraformed. There were four more in the works. But at last word, Tristan had attained a biosphere and a breathable atmosphere. Humans had probably been introduced, but the speed of light would delay the news for several hundred years. One could just as easily ask, why bother? Tristan will be a younger world of Minerva with fewer resources since it has no gas giant system surrounding it. Then they can benefit from our experience. Bringer, this is what humans do. Your kind acted to save us and we appreciate it, but there comes a time to do the grand and unnecessary thing. Just as I took the effort to sail out here all on my own on a boat that was really designed for taking short hops between the moons, I think humans should make the effort to cross the void without being digitized. I think we can do it. I must admit the Daedalus captivated me. He was displaying all the qualities which made humans so different from us, which had driven them to create us, and which might have saved them if we had allowed them more latitude. His ideas were half-formed and occasionally wrong, but I could see how the engineering could be made workable. We discussed the issue in detail for many days. You've convinced me the engineering can be worked out, I finally told him. It won't be easy, but it can be done. This leaves the biggest problem of all, though, our human passengers. Most of them will die in space, living their entire lives in a very small, cramped place. And the time may come when the last of them die, knowing the entire quest was folly despite our best efforts. What would you say to these people who will never know the security or expanse of a planetary surface? You are familiar with the last video from Iceland. Fortunately, I am a machine and I betrayed no startle reflex. I had been dwelling on that video quite a bit. Of course. If we must die, then we can learn to die like that. If catastrophe comes, then I hope we can at least face it and spit in its eye before it takes us. And if we are lucky, you can preserve a record of our fate to be given to those we might have visited under luckier circumstances. We talked for more days. Considering the length of his journey, a few dozen days with me posed little extra risk or hardship. Finally, I gave him my terms. The only uncertainty which I can't manage is cultural. You must demonstrate to me that a small group of humans can live in a small place all alone for thousands of years. You must find volunteers to populate a colony out here in the periphery. I won't be directly involved with this project, but I'll put in a word for you. The other machines will have no reason to deny you, even if it seems like a crackpot thing. Your colony must then survive without assistance for 10,000 Earth years. If such a colony can persist for that long, I will undertake to convey your descendants to Tristan. And that means I will die here while the colony still orbits Zeus. I won't live to see if the project is even ever started. That's right. If it fails soon and spectacularly enough, you might live long enough to notice that. Daedalus laughed. 
Humans often do this when confronted with horror. All right, then. At least I will die knowing that someone tried. I suppose I should be going now. I have some recruiting to do. And he departed. Colony. It should be obvious that I didn't accede to Daedalus's crazy plan simply because I was bored. We machines don't get bored. But neither are we designed to be left idle for thousands of years with nothing to do. Suddenly, I had a great deal to do, and I found it quite fulfilling. I quietly reactivated the original factories on Pittsburgh, which had long ago begun the process of terraforming. When I received polite inquiries as to what the hell was going on, I said I was doing maintenance and refurbishing and installing a more pilgrim-friendly visitor center. This news was greeted with cautious enthusiasm and not a hint of suspicion. I not only refueled my main reactors, I installed two new ones and fueled them too. And while the pressurized spaces I was creating would make a pleasant environment for pilgrims to relax in while viewing my innards, they would also be useful in other ways I was not revealing. Once I had been done lofting construction materials and other debris out into the periphery, Daedalus came through with his list of colonists and their petition for an isolated monastic retreat. Since I had conveniently started the machinery for doing construction out there, it was natural for me to offer assistance. It was also easy for me to hide the features of Daedalus colony, which didn't make much sense from a monastic retreat angle, but made a lot of sense if it was to be hurled into the void for a few tens of thousands of years. In the midst of all this activity, I also managed to conceal the fact that I was hoarding far more cryogenically stabilized volatiles than I could possibly need to outfit an ecosystem the size of Daedalus. Within 10 years, the colony was habitable and Daedalus the human and his colonists began to arrive. He had done a great deal of study on the subject of human social organization and had pursued my demand of keeping his colony stable with a ruthlessness I admired, even though I found the results disquieting. He had organized his colonists into an ascetic religious cult. They arrived wearing plain black robes, heads shaven, obsessing over pointless but complicated rituals which accompanied every aspect of life. He confessed to me that the task of designing a religion from the ground up had charged him with a kind of mad inspiration. Religion isn't unknown on Minerva, but we machines discourage it when we can. Daedalus had studied the history of religion on Earth and taken, he said, the craziest elements of them all to form his own. By the time Daedalus the man died, his followers had elevated me to the status of a deity and Daedalus himself to that of a prophet. They installed a three-meter-tall statue of him overlooking the colony's largest public space. They told their children that Minerva was becoming uninhabitable, a lie which I was sworn not to correct until the colony failed and was rescued, or we reached Tristan. The purpose of life was the journey, the ultimate meaning of life, the reverently regarded destination. As part of the rite of passage into adulthood, children would be told the secret that must never be spoken outside of proper ritual that the name of the destination was Tristan. When a colonist died, his adult friends would gather in private and solemnly promise collectively to see him on Tristan. It was the craziest damn thing ever, but after 500 years, I began to realize that it just might work. Departure. Like any self-respecting religion, Daedalism was a hive of secrets which were revealed gradually as one proved one's commitment to the cause. 
Daedalus had sensibly avoided binding one's position in life to one's sex or ancestry. Leadership was attained through a meritocracy, which required one to devote a great deal of energy to Daedalus rituals. Anybody could attain a high position in the cult with suitable effort. But the effort was so great that only a few bothered to try, and the others didn't resent the influence they earned. This process also tended to create leaders who firmly believed in the purpose of the mission, so that when they were informed at the age of 45 or 50 that Minerva was in fact quite habitable and the mission hadn't even yet begun, they were unlikely to spill the beans. Marla was the 210th captain of the colony, and she was glowing as we made contact. I had arranged our orbits so that the Atlas colony and I were within high bandwidth radio range exactly once every five Earth years. We exchanged formal greetings according to the script Daedalus himself had written. Bringer, it is our pleasure to report that another year has passed in stability and harmony according to the plan and according to the requirements with which you charged our founder. As always, this is excellent news, Captain. Bringer, according to our records, this is also the 10,000th year of our exile. According to our records, we have now satisfied your requirement. Do you agree? I do indeed, Captain Marla. Are you prepared then to uphold your promise? I have been making preparations for the last 10,000 years. You must now be in making your own preparations. We will depart in seven days. Thank you, Bringer. The periphery serves as a kind of catch-all garbage dump for things too valuable to pitch into Zeus or eject from the system, but also not valuable enough to have any use for a long, long time. There's an awful lot of crap out there, and it is incredibly difficult to track unless you know where it is to begin with. As Marla completed her report, more than two dozen objects that had been waiting for millennia happened to converge on us, and all of them began matching Daedalus's orbit under power. One of those packages was a strap-on Nerva high-thrust booster pack, which matched my orbit instead, robotically installed it on me, and allowed me to quickly match orbit with Daedalus Colony myself. While all this activity was very dramatic up close, I didn't expect it to be noticed from four light minutes away. The flash of my Nerva boosters was noticed, especially by the two pilgrim ships en route to me, and I passed it off as construction activity. This was not exactly a lie, after all. The Atlas colony had been designed as a rotating toroid to provide, quote, gravity, unquote. And since there are many variations on that design, nobody thought it odd that it was especially small and fast spinning. The central docking point was no docking point at all, but a decoration that could be quickly cast off. And nobody had noticed that the inner diameter of the colony's toroid just happened to be very close to the outer diameter of my ship body. As the raw materials for our departure arrayed themselves for use, I matched my own rotational rate to that of the colony and threaded myself through its center. When I activated the magnetic locks I had installed almost 10,000 Earth years before, the colony became part of myself, and we became the first manned starship. I sent out robots to gather the hoarded supplies which were drifting toward us and began welding shut the dynamic seals between my own body and the colony. Marla came up cautiously. Her people had never had any experience of weightlessness. She made one of her cult's obscure ritual gestures as she crossed from the colony into my body. Bring her, she said in a tone of awe. Captain Marla, I stand ready to take us to the stars. Then let's go. 
I had enough fuel to fire the Nerva boosters for nearly four days. I only used a fraction of their capacity since I might need them to maneuver at Tristan. In my wake, I left a high bandwidth communication detailing my scheme. I knew there was nothing in the Zeus system that could catch me once the ion drive had been running for a few weeks. The response was so elegant, I suspect it was written by a human. It simply read, good luck. There wasn't much else they could say. Hoping for my charges to die between the stars would have been rather unmachine-like. Behind me, there would be all manner of news and speculation, but I closed down my receivers and redirected my antennae toward our destination. Heretic. For the first time, I got to observe the day-to-day workings of the Daedalus cult in detail. It was astounding how well the thought system channeled the normally chaotic human experience into a state of machine-like order. I found the experience of being their god less than pleasant because they suppressed so much of what I admired about humans. But I had to admit, Diatlas had come through with an effective answer to my requirement. Occasionally, a person would have trouble accepting the creed. Since the colony was the entire world, there was nowhere else for them to turn. The cultists disciplined the such outsiders by shunning them. This usually brought the heretic around after a painful interlude. Four or five times during the voyage, it didn't work, and I had to intervene. The cultists would not admit to how such situations were handled before I docked with them and started the journey, and I was pretty sure I didn't want to know. The solution I came up with managed to resolve all the heresies that arose without violence. (coughs) Dorn, born in journey year 11027, was typical. At an age of 15 Earth years, he was a natural contrarian who believed nothing he was told. He was convinced that he was the victim of a vast conspiracy, which was unfortunately true. At my bequest, the cultist forced him into my ship body, then waited outside. Welcome, Dorn. I boomed from all around him. He sneered. So you're the machine who claims to be a god. The very same. And you are the student who claims to know a secret. I don't know what the secret is, but I know shit when I hear it. Well, you're right, of course. I turned on a conspicuous sign and opened a door. Would you kindly pull yourself over to the chamber I just opened and climb inside? Why, so you can brainwash me like those other zombies? No, I'm going to show you the secret that you know has been hidden from you. And I don't know how much you've guessed of my design, but I will tell you that my construction forbids me to lie. Well, that last bit was a lie. But most of the cultists don't realize how much I lie to them. It took more persuading, but Dorn, like all the others, eventually entered the chamber. I sealed the interior bladder, started the life support system, opened the outer hatch, and fired him off into the interstellar night. No, I didn't kill him. He was protected by a transparent bladder of many layers of very thin plastic. Each layer held back only a small partial pressure. (coughs) So the thing was much safer than it might have looked if you were familiar with spacecraft. I turned on my running lights, which had been installed to impress the pilgrims back in the day. Behold the world, I said through the device that reported to me on his condition and location. What is this? He demanded, voice nearly cracking in panic. You are privileged. No believer ever gets to see the outside of the colony. Your entire world is the torus around my waist, and I am the cylinder with the lights. 
we're not quite halfway to our destination. So it's just about a hundred light years to the nearest place where human beings can live other than what you see before you. No, there has to be more. One day there will be. Alas, you will not live to see it, but the colony will. If that is, it remains stable and perpetuates itself for another 15,000 years. You must ask yourself whether you want to be part of that or if you would prefer to make the rest of the way under your own power. The tether was three kilometers of very invisible monofilament, so he had no way of knowing I really intended to reel him in. What do you mean? There's nothing out here. I'll starve. Oh, you won't have to worry about starving. You only have enough oxygen for another hour or two. Eventually, the bladders will deflate and disintegrate, but your body will fly onward. Since we plan to decelerate and you will continue on at 0.02c, you'll reach Tristan ahead of us. Maybe they will wave at you. There was a long pause. I don't want to die, he finally said. Then you must accept the need to live what you think of as a lie, I replied. We're not in a position to change the rules. Given the situation, he sniffled, maybe it isn't a lie after all. In his turn, Dorn became one of the colony's better captains. Tristan. I began trying to communicate with Tristan when we were a light month and less than a human lifetime and journey years away. To my great irritation, I had no success. For a while, I was worried that I had somehow miscalculated our path. Since Tristan wanders between the stars and was not traveling with a searcher pack, I had no way to directly detect our destination until we were quite close. And while we pride ourselves on our care and precision, the century before Reykjavik proves that we are capable of making mistakes. It was a tremendous relief when I detected the waste RF energy typical of an industrialized world. It was puzzling that I detected so little of it. I finally made contact when we were practically close enough to send carrier pigeons. The controlling machines of Tristan seemed startled and confused by my arrival. I had expected surprise, but not hostility. Tristan had no recommendation for an approach path, and when I made orbit, I could see why. There was hardly anything in orbit. There was one large body suspiciously reminiscent of a searcher pack ship in an orbit that smelled geosynchronous, and otherwise nothing. I made a low Tristan orbit and began observing the planet. It was clear Tristan was supporting a much smaller population than Minerva, perhaps as few as a hundred million humans. There was no evidence of the use of nuclear energy or of any space launch capability. When I asked about this, the Tristanians pointed out that they had a mass driver powered by geothermal energy, which was used to send supplies and fresh robots to the hunter ship, which maintained their link to Sol. Otherwise, they had no presence in space. We don't even have a way to get your passengers down to the surface, the controllers warned. I can take care of that, but what you're saying is that if I take them down, you have no way to get them back up to me. That's right. And why should we? There's nothing up there. And the only place for us to put our dirty industries is on the world where our human population lives. This struck me as a ridiculously conservative stance, since one advantage of having a presence in space is that you can put your dirty industries there. The Tristanians had had a fully developed global energy system based on geothermally produced electricity. They had no high energy projects going at all. 
They had no significant off-grid presence. Since their transmission lines were DC and their data communication by fiber, it suddenly made sense how little waste radio frequency energy they admitted and how hard it had been to make contact. They were taking a very long view, which was sensible, but I thought they had gone overboard. Like our ancestors at Earth, they had boxed themselves in should anything ever go wrong, all to ward off a few hypothetical dangers that could be dealt with if necessary. Captain Donna listened gravely as I laid out the situation for my human passengers. The Tristanians have adopted a religious asceticism similar to our own. They run their world like a spaceship, knowing there are no outside resources to which they can turn. As a result, they demand that if we go down, we not spread word of our origin among their people. Bringer, for over 20,000 years, you have promised us that we would find a full world at our destination, which would allow us to cast aside our discipline. Now you tell us that we have merely arrived at a larger version of the journey, except that it isn't going anywhere. That is essentially true. None of us knew how Tristanian society would be molded when we left. If we would not lose our own culture and our memory of Daedalus, what are our options? Dana asked. We could stay on the ship. The Tristanians might be willing to resupply us via their mass driver. They might even eventually be brung around to the value of a presence in space, but it appears that our societies would remain permanently separated. Or we could return to Zeus. If the Tristanians help us reprovision, we could probably make it. There was much grumbling among the assembled crowd at this suggestion. I think I speak for my people when I say we would all rather die in space than become an exiled pariah class much less turn around and go back the way we came. There was cheering. But those are the only options. Tristan and Minerva are the only human habitable worlds, and the ship is not an indefinite solution unless we eventually reach a source of resupply. But Ringer, you're wrong. There is another human habitable world. It's even closer than Minerva. It is a sign of how fixed our thinking had become that it took a human to remind me of this simple fact. So we took a vote, and when it was unanimous, we told the Tristanians we intended to return to Zeus. They breathed an audible sigh of relief and spent a decade shooting us raw materials with their mass driver to provision us for another long voyage in the interstellar night. Thus it was that Captain Donna, who had presided over our arrival, presided also over our new departure. Knowing they had no tracking capability, we didn't bother to cover our tracks, if they noticed I was pointed nowhere near Zeus when I fired my engines, they never troubled to ask me about it. At least this time, I would have no doubt about my course. Instead of an abstract point in the darkness, I was aiming for a faint but definite orange dot whose spectrum was as familiar as home. Sol. The Sol system was exactly opposite of Tristan. They noticed me when I was still almost half a light year away. I began hearing the telltale pings of radars whose purpose I recognized. Long before I crossed the orbit of Pluto, I'm sure they had a model of me detailed enough to include the name painted on my hull. As soon as the turnaround time became less than completely ridiculous, I began receiving properly coded invitations to parlay. They knew exactly what I was, although obviously not which individual. What brings you back home in this manner, brother? And how in the hell did you arrange to do it? I fed them a tale which was all true except for one tiny detail I left out. I told them who I was, I told them about being turned into a monument, about the pilgrimages, and about slowly going nuts in the Zeus periphery. 
I told him I had decided to visit Tristan and had described what I found there. I neglected to mention the little matter of my passengers. I'm sure they had their suspicions. Their radars would have told them about the Taurus in my rotation period. They politely sent me a list of places where I was invited to resupply or sightsee. Earth was conspicuously absent. I came screaming into the Sol system at just under solar escape velocity, even though I could have slowed more. I still had the nerve a high impulse pack, and I brought it into play during a boomerang maneuver around Venus. There was a period of a couple of months when a high badly placed solar flare would have killed all my passengers. But as Diatlas once told me, life is risk. The sooner I made low Earth orbit, the safer we would be. My passengers and Captain Mardis watched the high-definition video of our flybys. They were also making preparations for our arrival. I simply stopped listening to the desperate comm requests after my trajectory for the Earth. I was no longer the fastest object in the system, but I was coming in from a direction and with a velocity none of them could hope to match. I flashed past Luna, spent the rest of the Nerva Pack's energy, and dropped neatly into a nearly equatorial orbit at an altitude of 300 kilometers above the surface. The Earth beneath us was blue and green, its oceans unfrozen, its continents awash with life. My brothers had done their part of my plan well. There were ships in the Earth Luna system, and when I opened comms, it was clear that they were pissed. Quarantine violator, you must leave immediately or you will be destroyed. And how would you destroy me, brothers? Have we acquired a taste for weapons during my absence? I think they were startled to get a response. We have lasers on Luna used for environmental control. We could vaporize you at will. You must leave immediately. I found a camera overlooking the colony main square and fed it to my high bandwidth transmitter. You would fire upon a ship carrying human passengers? This time I made several orbits unmolested by laser fire while they figured out what to say. We had entertained that possibility but counted it as impossible. You are insane. However you arrange to bring them here, you must take them away. This is a stellar environment. This place is too dangerous for human habitation. This is where their ancestors evolved. My passengers are colonists, and it is their desire to colonize their home world. Would you deny them? This time there was another long delay. I guessed they were looking for advice from Ceres. Meanwhile, I used my ion motor to gradually lower my perigee until I was just grazing the atmosphere at the bottom of a slightly elliptical orbit. We would deny them this thing, bringer of Minerva. We oversaw the extinction of human life on Earth 50,000 years ago. We will not risk going through that again. Surely you see that settling here is much safer than making another 15,000-year journey in space. This is how you would reward their bravery. This is how we would protect them from there and from your foolishness. We know you have no means to deorbit 3,000 humans, and we will not help you. You have no choice but to leave. We will reprovision you at Neptune for the safety of your passengers. Earth. As soon as I was climbing out of my atmosphere grazing perigee, I began getting them out of the airlocks as fast as I could. They had practiced this, and I had long known the constraints, and so I just barely managed to get everyone out before I had to cut them loose. They drifted in transparent spherical bladders almost 10 meters across, the same thin multiple-layer system I had once tested on the occasional heretic. 
When we reached the atmosphere, again, I, a large and heavy ship, once again plowed through with minimal loss of velocity. But the passengers in their bubble slowed dramatically, and I left them behind. I immediately started using my ion motors to recircularize my orbit. Reentry is a tricky business. The air comes roaring at you like a blowtorch, but at, for, at first it's a very thin blowtorch. The trick is to be large and light so that you're slow enough before the heat accumulates enough to burn you. The outermost layers of the soap bubble held only a small partial pressure of air, but they were large, and they slowed down as quickly as kites when the air caught them. After their first inflation, the membranes were engineered to fall apart in many small panels when the tension of inflation was relieved. As my passengers fell deeper into the atmosphere, their protective bubbles would peel away layer by layer until at about 5,000 meters, they would simply be falling unprotected through the atmosphere. At 500 meters, their parachutes would open automatically. Every passenger was trained in landing. We had eschewed new births in the years before arrival so as to reduce the problem of dealing with children. Each passenger carried locating transmitters, communication devices, and components necessary for them to set up a camp. What is the meaning of the activity you performed at Perigee? Well, it was done now. I have deorbited my crew. When I come around, I will find out where they ended up and how many made it. They should be in Southeastern Asia. That isn't possible. It would take a fleet of transport ships days to ferry the population of a colony ship to the surface. I was tired of arguing, so I just sent them the schematics of the bubble system. I had designed it anticipating a lack of transport at Tristan, though not the total lack we had found. It was fortunately adaptable to subterfuge. You are crazy. How could you subject your humans to this crazy scheme? They volunteered. Humans are crazy too, then. Well, they must be. They built us. We, we will have to get them up. You must take them away. They're human, and they won't go voluntarily. I think you should find your way clear to dealing with the situation because it's not going away. You are a criminal. You have violated the most important taboo of our kind. You have subjected humans to unjustifiable danger to no sensible purpose. If you don't think recolonizing their home world is a sensible purpose, then I'd suggest you don't understand humans as well as you think you do. There were 15 deaths because of the drop, two failed bubbles, and 13 who just landed in really bad places. Then again, over a million had died in space to give them this opportunity. Once resources were available, all of their names would be recorded on a memorial wall with Daedalus at the front of the list. I became aware that a hell of a lot of ships were converging on Earth. That was not entirely unexpected. We have reached a decision as to how we will deal with you. That is such a relief. For days, I've thought you were shunning me. We will give your humans assistance. Machines are on the way. If they are going to start a human colony on Earth, it is important they start it right and not do anything stupid. I'm sure they will take all your suggestions under advisement. They will not be our suggestions. They will be yours. That last transmission did not parse. You will get machines, but not machine personalities. You will have to copy yourself into each machine. None of us will have anything to do with this crazy project. Every death will be on your conscience. This is your project, and you will see it through. You complained of not having enough to do in the Zeus periphery. We hope you are sincere because you have a hell of a lot to do now. I pondered this. 
it made sense in that machine kind of way, a way that was almost alien to me now. I had been dealing with humans exclusively for so long that I clearly thought more like them than I like my brother machines. Perhaps my brother machines sensed this, if not the wisdom of their decision was inadvertent. This also means that if we do form a successful society, I will get all the credit, I teased. You get the credit for whatever happens. We will not permit machines bearing your personality to leave Earth. Your line is all nuts. Your pack brothers are trying to reach Andromeda, and that's probably even more nuts than this. But of course, we did succeed. The machines arrived. I copied myself into each one, and within 10 years, where the landing camp stood, there was a city. Within 100 years, there were cities on every continent. A handful of hardy souls had even reoccupied Reykjavik to complete the loop. People die, of course. They have accidents. They do foolish things, and there are storms and wild animals and all kinds of hazard. But the society flourishes, and the golden age into which I have seen them isn't quite as conservative as the one their extinct ancestors knew. We have nuclear reactors and near-Earth space travel, and there is even a movement afoot to build a space elevator. Some of it is distinctly unsafe, but all of it is based on human desire, and that's how it should be, because this is our real gift to the human race which created us. A billion dark worlds are a passing fancy. Their real reward is to come home. This has been The Passage Home, narrated by Roger Williams for Tommy's podcast. That that was the best reading you've done yet. That's fantastic. I, I could I could sense that I was doing a better job on the enunciation and not tripping up as much. Oh, not even before. that. I mean the story. Yeah. No, the um, reading was, was fantastic. The technical <laughs> reading was fantastic. The story is fucking amazing, man. That's fucking dope as shit. Truly. I mean, that is, that is, I love it. But I wish you would, if, if you could tie in like, um, is it, so it, does it end at like where we are now? Oh no, it doesn't end for a while. There's, there's there's another major story. Oh, uh, then then there is a story that has less of a mythological scope, but it is more uh, a uh, an individual's story living within the society. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then there is a five part thing that I don't really think is quite as good that uh, traces uh, a much longer range development of how these machines and the human societies there. Uh, kind of curating uh, go on afterward. But uh, yeah, the uh, right now, this is this is sort of the initial epic scope part of the story, but it goes, well, obviously, you know, the uh, the last part of passages in the void is set a billion years in the future. And it will turn out that there is still life in the Milky Way, when life is established in Andromeda. And uh, then I have a story in Revelation passage set in a galaxy 10 times further away than that. I think it was fucking fantastic. (laughs) Well, thank you. I would love to see you somehow tie in the Great Pyramids. I thought it was going to be... If you somehow... (laughs) It was like my final resupply was three pyramidal-shaped whatever just something but i mean but that's i mean that's not a critique that's a that's like a a cherry on top that that was fucking amazing yeah. roger 
Yeah, this is this this entire story universe has no aliens and no paranormal phenomena. Yeah. This is this is a completely straightforward, scientifically literal, yeah. uh, you know, materialist mm-hmm. uh, reading Re- on things. Reductionism, yeah. So, so that's the uh, yeah. So it's like the universe is not a simulation in this story, like it is in Mopey. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is this is this is like taking all of the worst case scenarios, because what what inspired the whole thing was uh, some reviewer said about the book Rare Earth that well if this is true it's the end of science fiction and hmm. that that's like you know i did one of those exercises once to find out what your motivational word is you know it's like what is the word when someone says it it just gets you off your butt and inspires you to do whatever you have to do and i realized in my case it's impossible mm-hmm. Tell me something is impossible, and I will move heaven and earth to prove you wrong. Fuck it. <laughs> well, I mean, that kind of goes into the whole story you just told. It's the yeah, same thing. And I mean, dude, I remember I was 20 years old when I went to see my advisor at Valdosta, Valdosta State University. And I told them I was like a C student and a meathead. And I was like, I want to be a doctor. And she like looked through everything. She was like, so if that, you know, because that most likely won't happen. Are you interested in nursing school? And I was like... <laughs> And like, and I took that personally, and I was like, okay. Funny how that works, isn't it? It it does, and it's I I. There's something about it, where it's like if someone sincerely tells you, and it can't be like a fake. They're doing it to get you fired up. It has to be someone sincerely tells you that it's impossible, and you're just like, all right, bitch, Mm -hmm. like, you just created a religion for me. (laughs) Like (laughs) this is going to be, but it's it's kind of beautiful because that's right that's almost something that that's not something a machine can learn like we're gonna go die on the shore instead of like rats and it's like what do you mean and it's like because you know at a certain point there's like a a non-quantifiable thing where it's like more it's almost more honorable to your own psyche to go like face the kilometer 1.3 kilometer wave than to go we're gonna scurry up farther in the mountains and it's like dude at a certain point Hope the ship from Mars gets here in time to stop us from freezing to death. Yeah, right. We can at build a, another town. Right. It's like at a. <laughs> it's like at a certain point. It's like maybe the British will stop taxing us at a certain point. Washington and his boys were like, "Fuck it." They were the original "fuck the police." <laughs> they got out their muskets yeah. and were like, "They're like fuck the police." And something beautiful can happen. Sometimes you get slaughtered, but like there is an honor in just like not life, in choosing your life own is risk. Yes, exactly. It's like there's an honor in it, right? And just because you take the risk doesn't mean it's going to work out, right? But there's an honor. I think there is an honor in like standing, even if you're on the edge of oblivion and annihilation and obliteration. There is an like just if I may be so non not humble, but even like this podcast, like I just like I'm like, I'm going to make it. I'm going to start it, and it's just gonna. And sometimes it works. This is a yeah. case where it worked. There, there was a. Uh, I think I told you some of my gambling stories, mm-hmm. and uh, one of one of my favorite things that happened uh, back in those days when we were casino hounds is uh, I was playing in a craps tournament, and uh, of course, in a tournament you're playing with play money, mm-hmm. and whoever gets the most play money at the end of the you know everyone starts at five hundred dollars sure. of, of play you know non-negotiable checks. And whoever has the most money at the end of the round wins. And so I was in the final round. Uh, 
which meant I had to win a qualifying round and a semifinal round to get to the table. And I was making a move and I put uh, the maximum bet on, I think it was a pass line and got wiped out. I had 40 bucks left. Mm -hmm. I'm at a table where the top two people each have like seven or $800. And every, cause everyone plays real conservatively and, and, tournaments it's one of the advantages you have if you're a knowledgeable tournament player but here i am i just made my move and wiped out okay so i got 40 bucks left and like what can i do we got maybe two or three rolls left before the 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 thing has ended so the highest paying bet on a craps table is uh a a single number twist is 12 two or 12. so I i threw the 40 bucks out and said give me 12. Um, yeah, the shooter, we're, we're, who, who yeah. incidentally was one of the leaders, rolled the dice and rolled a 12. And so then I was sitting there. I still wasn't in the lead. It, it got me back in the game. And I was sitting there with, you know, at, that, at, at this point now I had like $600. And if I made any even money bet and won, I would surpass the two leaders. Mm-hmm. And all they had to do was one of them bet pass and one bet don't pass. Mm-hmm. And they would have walked, they would have been able to lock me out, but they both looked at me and said, dude, go for it. Mm-hmm. And so I put the $600 on the pass line, dude rolled an 11, boom, tournament's over. I won. Fuck yeah. That was a thousand bucks. Fuck yeah. <laughs> but that's the thing is sometimes you just gotta like, you have to just walk into the fire. But a lot, but a lot of people would have just went, well, I made my move and blew it. Mm-hmm. Okay. Whatever. You know, but, but it's like, okay, what you know, to, to, to me, that's like, I'm sitting here at this table. You know, it's like, I, I just went to last place from, from like fourth place to last place. And I'm like, I got 40 bucks. So what, what do you do? Well, you mm-hmm. do the only thing that's possible. Yeah. It probably won't work. Yeah. You go, but you it's go, better than doing nothing. Right. Yeah. yeah. You go and for the, yeah. Hey, yeah. Sometimes it works. Yeah. Right. Right. It's like the end of Saving Private Ryan when he's just injured and he's laying in the street and he's just emptying his pistol at the oncoming tank. But then the P-51s come in and vomit and it, that didn't really do anything. But, um, you know, Roger, I got to hop on a phone call. So we have to end this okay. one. We have to end this one rather abruptly. But that was fucking awesome, man. I appreciate it. I'm going to send you I'm going to send you those videos I mentioned in the airship video I did 301. Oh, yeah. I'm going to send you there's there's two of them. They're kind of the same. Not really. And then it's uh yeah but i'd say like yeah you listen to those two i would love to do an episode with you on that i would love to to kind of brainstorm with you and see because i've tried to bring that up with so many people and they're like dude you're crazy this is crazier than ufos this is like victorian ufos i'm like shut up but (laughs) well it is it it almost literally is victorian ufos it's 100 victorian ufos but so roger i gotta i gotta hop on this call i apologize for uh skadoodling so quickly but um, Roger Williams, author of my favorite book, Metamorphosis of Prime Intellect, will be in the description in the top comment. Roger, that was like your thousandth episode on here, even though we're only at 300. As <laughs> always, my friend, a pleasure. And uh, I'll text you and let's set up the next one. All right, my man? All right, Roger. Happy New Year's, man. Happy New Year's. 2021. Right. Come on. 2020. Come on. <laughs> we can do it. All right, my man. Bye. Peace. Peace. <laughs> Hehehehe. <laughs>